So let me uh, just mention a character of God that we need to remember. In the book of Malachi, it says that God sits as a refiner. Don't miss that. God sits as a refiner. Now, if you want a ring of gold, it has to be refined. And the gold has to be put into a fire so that the refiner can do its work, so that the dross comes to the top and it's scraped off, and then what shows is the gold. And the more the refining, the better the reflection. The more you and I get refined, the more we reflect the refiner. Now, the thing that is great about that passage of Scripture is that Jesus sits as a refiner. Those of you that are here at the altar, let me tell you what Jesus is not doing right now. He's not biting his nails. He's not pacing back and forth. He's not walking around wondering what in the world is going on and what am I going to do? Look at all those people. I don't. He's sitting. He's in a position of authority. He's in a position of awareness. He's in a position to see and know what is going on in every life of every person. And he refines not to destroy us but to purify us. Not to hurt us, but to help us. The refining nature of God is that in refining, He prunes and He digs out and He works out and works in that which He wants to do in our lives. That means He's a good God. He doesn't take us and drop a false off, off on the side of the road and say, well, good luck. Nothing catches him by surprise. Nothing catches him by surprise. Catches some of us by surprise, but doesn't catch him by surprise. And when those trials come, he's already been there, and he already knows. He is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was tempted in all points as we are, yet he did not sin. Everything this world could throw at us, it has already thrown at Jesus. And he has overcome it. So this world doesn't get the last word. Your circumstances don't get the last word. Your situation doesn't get the last word. Somebody else's idea doesn't get the last word. God gets the last word. And his word is always that surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. David had seen that in the high points of his life and he had seen it at the lowest moments of his life. He had seen it when he was a shepherd. He had seen it when he was forgotten by his father. He had seen it when he was pursued by Saul. He had seen it when he was the king of the greatest kingdom that Israel had ever known. He had seen it all. And he wrote that psalm as an old man and looked back on his life. He said, God's been good. God's been good. I'm sure there were moments in David's life when he wanted to do things his way. But he didn't. He let God do things his way. 
David suffered, but he did not suffer without purpose. And he did not suffer without leaving us a testimony about his suffering. The scriptures are full of stories of people that weren't perfect. Aren't you glad of that? I mean, but yeah, I remember sitting in, in Bible class in, in college, and uh, I think it was Dr. Stevens was teaching the class, and he said, you know, he said, what we would like is a Bible full of perfect people because we think it hurts God's reputation when we find out that God uses all these imperfect people that keep messing up. And all it is is a reminder is that we are like them. We are frail flesh. And we're just like them. We mess up. And so God took imperfect people and walked them through their imperfections and met them at the point of their need all on the basis of his promises, not on the basis of their worth. Whether you're talking about Israel or whether you're talking about the church or whether you're talking about you personally, God meets us not on the basis of our worth, but on the basis of his word. I'd rather him meet me on the basis of his word than on the basis of my worth. Because I'm, what I'm worth is nothing apart from Christ. And so we come now to Galatians 5, I think. But I, I didn't want us to miss that moment. Paul has set up this fruit of the Spirit by talking about the works of the flesh. Now, you don't even have to have a concordance and you don't have to know Greek to understand the works of the flesh because they're all around us. There's nothing new under the sun. And Paul is introducing the fruit of the Spirit by talking about the deeds or the works of the flesh in verse 19. The deeds of the flesh are evident, obvious, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. In other words, Paul said, I've given you a good list, but there's a whole lot of other stuff that's out there. Those are the deeds of the flesh, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice live consistently in these ways will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I like what Guy King uh, said about this. He said, these verses take us from the slum to the orchard, from the garbage dump to the rose garden. The Holy Spirit gives us the power to operate in this realm of the Spirit. He gives us a contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Now, it's easy to identify the works of the flesh. I mean, they're outward acts. The fruit of the Spirit is an internal thing. It, it has to be in us before it comes out of us. It has to be a part of us. And so Paul is writing about these, these fleshly behaviors that are either humanity out of control, 
the result of people being oppressed or possessed by a demon or just the work of the devil. And he says, this is what happens when the devil's in charge. If you want to know what happens when the devil has his way, all of these things begin to show up. But God has given us a better way of living. And that is the fruit of the Spirit. Look at this quote. Self-control is what transforms a promise into a reality. It is the words that speak boldly of your intentions and the actions which speak louder than words. It is making the time where there is none, coming through time after time, year after year. Self-control is the stuff character is made of, the power to change the face of things. It is the daily triumph of integrity over skepticism. So you've got in your notes, and I, I didn't want to take time to go through all of this and comment on it, so I put it in your notes on the first point. The battle for control is real. I just want you to go through it with me quickly. Before we were born again, we possessed a sinful, fallen, depraved nature called the flesh. Now the flesh is mentioned twice in verse 16, it's mentioned in verse 17, it's mentioned in verse 19, and it's mentioned in verse 24. It's also the natural man, or the old man, or our old nature. Secondly, when we were born again, we received a new nature, a spiritual nature, the new man. Number three, every Christian, therefore, possesses two natures, the old and the new. The old we inherited from Adam, and the new we received Christ as Lord and Savior. Now just stop at number three for a second and just look this way. There are people who teach that when you get saved, you just have one nature, that the old nature is eradicated. If I were to ask your spouse, they would disagree with that theology. There are people that say, well, we're just one nature. And so we, we don't have that old nature anymore. No, you have an old nature that could not be fixed and repaired or tuned up. You had to get an overhaul. You had to get a new motor. And so there's a new motor inside of you, a new nature of the Holy Spirit. And there's a conflict between those natures constantly until the day we die. Someone asked a preacher one time, well, which nature wins? He said, the one you feed the most. Whichever nature you feed the most, that's the nature that's winning the day in your life and in my life. And so we have these two natures that are at odds with each other. Verse 4, which coexist, uh, number 4, within every Christian are exact opposites and in constant conflict with one another. Number 5, the old flesh nature manifests itself in works or deeds which are corrupt, depraved, and self-serving. Number six, the Holy Spirit who lives in us manifests the new nature, the fruit of the Spirit. And then number seven, the key to victory is for us to abide in Christ and let the fruit of the Spirit grow in our lives. So the battle is a daily decision. Because left to myself, I won't do. I, I just want to act in my flesh. How about you? Am I the only one that ever just wants to just kind of go off in the flesh and say, "Lord, I'll ask you to forgive me in about an hour." 
But for the next 59 minutes and 55 seconds, I just want to have a spell. <laughs> All of us do that. And guess what? The devil is poking that bear all the time. He's pushing it, pushing it, pushing the buttons, pushing the buttons, trying to get you and trying to get me to respond in our flesh because he knows that one of the greatest evangelistic tools we have is a believer who operates in the fruit of the Spirit, whose life is so incredibly different that it is seen by a lost world and they ask, why are you the way that you are? So how do, how do we live in the power of the Spirit? First of all, we keep on reckoning, verse 24. We keep on reckoning. We've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Our flesh was crucified. We died with Christ. We live in Christ. Our sins, past, present, and future have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. But we keep on reckoning that what God said is true is in fact true. We reckon it's an accounting term. Secondly, we keep on relying, verse 18, led by the Spirit. We keep relying on Him. We keep on receiving, verse 16, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Verse 25 says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. All of us have tendencies and passions and desires that need to be controlled. Here's the key. There's an area in all of our lives where the devil knows we are vulnerable. He works to get us to cave in and to compromise. Then he works to get us on a guilt trip. That's just his mode of operation. Now, we, we look at this and Paul is writing this letter to this church, to these believers who have come out of a pagan culture. And what is celebrated in the Greek culture and in the Roman culture are the works of the flesh. All those things that we read in the works of the flesh, those are celebrated. That's what makes you a real person is to live that way. And so they had gods that they worshipped that had those attributes of the flesh. They lived out in immorality. It was, it was just unbelievable, the Roman and the Greek culture, how perverse they really were. And yet, because they were educated and because they were mighty in military, they felt like these two were not in conflict with each other. And so Paul writes to them in this anything goes, pagan sensual society raised to yield to the flesh and he says in Christ you can be different now think about it he's writing to the Galatians there these are Gentiles that have never known any other way of life than that way of the works of the flesh and he's saying you've been saved out of that way of life you have a new way that you live so that when you go back into the world that lives in that way of life, they see something different in you and it's the attracting power of the Holy Spirit in you because everybody likes fresh fruit. And we are to have the freshness of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Older translations use the word temperance. It, it, the Greek word literally means self-mastery of desires and affections. Self-mastery of desires and affections. It is handling your freedom properly. Yes, we are free in Christ, but it's handling our freedom properly. 
It is being in the world, but not of it. It is saying no to all that God forbids and yes to all that God allows. Colossians 3, turn just a few pages. If you don't know which order these epistles are in, it's General Electric Power Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So if you get to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, just a few pages, you'll find these verses. Colossians 3. Paul says the same thing to the church at Colossae. Verse 1. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God, which means our satisfaction is to be in Christ, in what he does and in who he is. And when Christ, who is your life, Paul is saying, your life's not in the stuff you have. Your life is not in the places you go. Your, your life is not in how much money you make. Christ is your life. Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world. You will share in all his glory. So put to death the sinful things lurking within you, having nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have been stripped off of your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like him. So to strip off or to take off or to put off and to put on. I, I take this behavior off and I put on the nature and the behavior of Christ. All of these things that he's listed in Colossians and in Galatians are part of the old nature. Now, two, two facts. What you desire determines what you do. What you desire determines what you do. That, that kills the idea, well, I can't help myself. If the Holy Spirit is living inside of you, you can by his power. What you desire determines what you do, and life is what you are alive to. What is life? Life is what you're alive to. Some people are alive to the works of the flesh. We are to be alive to the work of the Holy Spirit. I, I heard about a college student who was invited to a, to a big party. And they knew that if they went to this party, there was going to be incredible pressure for sex and for alcohol and for drugs and a lot of other things. And, and they were a new Christian, but they didn't know what to do because they didn't want anybody to think that they were a prudish or anything else. And so they sent a text message to the person that invited them thinking this would stir a conversation. And this was the text message. I appreciate the invitation to your party, but I will be unable to attend since I recently died. (laughs) 
which led to the conversation, what do you mean you recently died? Oh, I died to that way of life when Christ gave me a better life. Amen. Pretty good response. Pretty good use of a text message. So let's ask the questions. Are any of these things a part of our lives? And if they are, how do we deal with them? We deal with them by putting them off, choosing to lay that lifestyle aside and putting on a new life, a new lifestyle. And Paul wrote to Titus and he said, man, this is for everybody. He said, older men are to be, have self-control. Older women are to have self-control. Younger men are to have self-control. Now, this is what's amazing about the fruit of the Spirit. There's no accident to this order. Paul began with love and ends with self-control. These are the bookends. One fruit, nine manifestations, but Paul begins with love and he ends with self-control. In other words, if I don't get who I'm supposed to love and how I'm supposed to love right, I will never get to self-control. If I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and my neighbor is myself, then I can live in self-control because I'm living on the basis of love. Now, two things about the brackets. Love is directed toward others. Self-control is directed toward ourselves. Love is how I respond to others and show the fruit of the Spirit. Self-control is how I respond to my fleshly desires and the weaknesses of my flesh to say, I'm not going to let that run my life. So let's get a battle plan. Number one, realize there is a battle. You got to realize there is a battle. Now, some days it may seem that the battle is hotter than other days. There are some days that it seems like, man, I've, I've, I got the smell of smoke all over me. I'm so much in the middle of the firing in the battle. Some days it seems like the battle's not so bad. But the battle is always raging. You remember with Jesus, he went to the Mount of Temptation, he was tempted, and then the devil left him until a more convenient time. The devil wasn't through trying to get Jesus off of his mission. He just withdrew for a while. And sometimes the devil will withdraw for a while, for a season in our lives, and we'll think, man, I'm doing pretty good. And before you know it, that's all you're thinking. Man, I'm doing pretty good. And then before you know it, I don't need to pray because I got this. I don't need to read my Bible because I've got this. I've got this all figured out. I can see it coming. I know what's about to happen. You have to remember you're in a battle. The enemy may not be firing at you today, but he's ready to fire at you tomorrow. So you have to remember. Secondly, the spirit can overcome the flesh, but you determine who wins. The Spirit can overcome the flesh, but you determine who wins. Whether it's how we act, how we react, what we watch on a computer, how we treat other people, whatever, the, the Spirit can overcome the flesh. I mean, that is in the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome our flesh, but we determine who wins by yielding, by surrendering, by acknowledging I can't do this on my own. 
Number three, walking in the Spirit conquers the flesh. That's how we become overcomers. When I walk in the Spirit, I'm allowed by the power of the Spirit to conquer the flesh, which wants to conquer me. Walking in the Spirit produces fruit, and that fruit is evident. It's evident. And we ought to make our life goal to be Christ-like. Our family, our friends, our, the people that come in contact with us, we should make it our life goal to be Christ-like. Our assignment is to be witnesses of Christ in a world that doesn't know what a witness of Christ looks like if we don't give it. I mean, he's not going to send a 747 with a banner behind it out of heaven going, you ought to listen to Jesus right now. He's already sent Jesus. He sent Jesus and he left us. And we have to use self-control. So how are we going to do that? It's a decision. It's a once-in-a-lifetime decision to, to trust Christ, to realize I can't run my life, I can't control my life, I need Christ to change my life. That's a once-in-a-lifetime decision, but it's also a daily decision of daily dying. There's a story that's been often used, and I used it here about 17 years ago, and if any of you can remember that and quote it, I'll be glad for you to, but I'm going to use it again. It's a story of a martyr. It's been attributed to a number of people, but the best I can tell, it was to a missionary that was martyred in Africa a number of years ago. And I find in that statement that he made the description of the self-controlled person, here's what he said. By the way, this was found after he was dead. I'm a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is over and my present is busy. My future is now. I'm finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, mundane talking, chintzy giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I now live by presence, learn by faith, love by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. My face is set. My gait is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions few. My mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, slow up until I've preached up, prayed up, paid up, stored up, and stayed up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till I'll know, and work till he stops. And when he comes to get his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. Let's stand together, heads bowed and eyes closed.
Today, if you have never trusted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, then I want to invite you in just a moment when we begin to sing to step out and find one of these men and to give your heart to Christ today. To ask Him to save you, to change you, to help you and empower you by His Spirit to overcome the flesh so that you can live in Christ. You can follow Him and obey Him. But today also it may be a time for you to declare to the devil, you know, I'm not yours anymore. I'm tired of you running and ruining my life. And maybe there's that area, that one area where the devil keeps probing and keeps working. And you need to find your way to this altar and say, Lord, that area, this day, right now, I give to you so that you can be manifest in my life. I'm going to pray, we're going to sing, and as we sing, you step out and you come as God leads. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that we will be a people with our faces set toward heaven, with our hearts in tune with Jesus, with all that we have and all that we are bent to your will not to our flesh, so that Christ might be magnified in our lives. For I pray it in Jesus' name.